Welcome back, everyone, to the Age of Awareness podcast. We are kicking off season two of our episodes here. We were happy to get out 10 episodes for season one, and we are thrilled to be kicking off season two with author and lecturer Alfie Cohn. It was a wonderful opportunity and a real honor to have this conversation with him. It's one of the more eye-opening conversations I've had about education and education reform as of recently. Like most of our conversations, I think that everyone from teachers, students, parents, and really anyone interested in education reform um, can get something out of this conversation. We cover a number of topics in a pretty short period of time, um, everything from the myth of learning loss uh, to students and teachers standing up to a standardized test. We kick off the conversation questions about federal funding and how that plays a role in, with standardization in education as a whole, and how in turn that influences the ability of schools to be innovative or unique in their approach. So again, welcome back to the Age of Awareness podcast, and welcome to season two. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Federal government funds only, I think, six or seven percent of uh, of American education. It's almost entirely at the state and local levels. So I'm not sure how relevant the question is if you really are drilling down into the federal involvement of that. I think the federal government's role in education should be to provide guarantees of um, of equity and fairness in what happens, but. Funding, in general, should be done by need. That's what happens in most of the rest of the world. If there are high poverty communities, they get more money because they need more money. The United States, in general, works in a very different way, not just with respect to education or, for that matter, health care, but in, in many ways. Not taking account of need and sometimes doing exactly the reverse, which is giving various grants based on supposed merit, which ends up just being a marker for affluence, so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Even worse, standardized tests have sometimes been used, for example, in the so-called No Child Left Behind Act during the Bush administration, and then Race to the Top, which compounded the damage under the Obama administration of, of providing punishment, in effect, for the districts that most needed help because their students didn't do as well on poor measures of achievement. So there's layers of issues here. How we fund, what specific indications we use of, uh, of how things are going, and the whole philosophical notion uh, that it should be done on the basis of how well you've performed a merit-based approach. Um, that rewards and punishes in order to get uh, compliance. Each of these is a level of, of sort of problematic assumptions about, about how to support education. And there, there's even one more layer I'll throw in, which is the whole idea of measurement. The question, how do we measure how well schools are doing? Let's assume that we're rational enough not to base funding on that but we just want to know if things are going well, um, assumes that 
children's understanding of meaning can be reduced to numerical terms. And the, rea- the result is that we end up trivializing teaching by teaching to those things which lend themselves to quantification. Even though, as one educator put it, measurable outcomes may be the least significant results of learning. And that's so important to understand. I mean, it's like uh, how we've cut off, truncated our conversation if we ask, how do we measure this? Is it's sort of like if if I said, whose car are, are we going to take when we go to the restaurant tonight? We've already, by 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 framing the question that way, ruled out the possibility of walking or bicycling or taking public transit, as opposed to the broader question of how are we going to get to dinner tonight? The comparable question for education would be, how do we assess learning and teaching rather than how we measure it? So there's just layers of problems uh, that are that are built into the idea of how we think about how education ought to be funded rather than just supported, uh, what criteria ought to be used, and standardization, a one-size-fits-all approach, actually fits none and makes education much worse, not only in terms of how, how tests are used, but in terms of expectations and standards um, that don't take account of the real differences from one community to another and from one child to another. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm I'm grateful that GPAs weren't used to determine uh, <laughs> determine job prospects. Uh, in in my experience, because uh, if it if I were reliant on my personal GPA, I I would be doing something completely different. So it was, it and that was my experience in school is that my engagement level was not actually reflective of how I was being measured. So it created a sense of confusion or frustration because it didn't my grades didn't always reflect how I viewed myself as, you know, intelligent, curious, or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, but I could never rectify that. And uh, at the end of the yeah, day, when your grades aren't great, you're in a great position to understand the limits of grading. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trick is to get people who get good grades to realize how meaningless that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back to, uh, follow-up question about the funding. And so thanks for the clarification about just how the funding is actually distributed mostly through state and local jurisdictions. Can you share any examples of where it's working well, what states or localities are doing it? Maybe it doesn't even have to be right. They're just getting closer to a better way of funding. I'm not an expert on this, and I haven't looked at the specific differences. I do know that there was a, a move away from from standardized tests and to and to more uh, authentic forms of assessment uh, some you know a couple of decades ago in places like Nebraska. But I don't know what the funding mechanism was in each of those places. And in any case, most of the experiments with authentic assessments put aside the question of the extent to which funding was contingent on those results um, have been closed down because the federal government used its outsized power, despite funding only a small portion of education, to compel states and localities to do it as badly as possible, Democrats and Republicans alike. With programs, basically, when 
when what should be called the Many Children Left Behind Act started more than uh, 20 years ago, basically the federal government said, you know, we don't have logic on our side. We don't have good evidence on our side. Uh, so the only thing we do have on our side is power. So we're going to punish the schools that don't do things the way we want, which means basically becoming test preparation factories. And the residues of that are, are still being felt. We've lost half a generation to this nonsense, if maybe an entire generation. In, in particularly in urban communities, and to some extent in poor rural communities as well, what, what we find is there's such pressure to raise test scores at the local, state, and federal levels that classrooms are often turned into glorified test prep academies where the best kinds of lessons have, have been jettisoned to make room for that which raises scores on tests that measure what matters least. So there's still problems with this. But for specific funding opportunities and who's trying to resist this, which communities, I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. It's not what I specialize in. Yeah, understood. No, thanks for that. So our audience is comprised of an array of different types of folks in the education space. We've got uh, teachers, we've got administrators, we've got parents. Uh, we even have some young, rising, I guess for lack of a better word, I'll say activists, you know, young children who are very passionate about their education. Uh, and then we have, in general, folks who are interested. In, and so for the teachers out there, of the teachers that I know and that I interact with, I know there's just a massive sense of frustration about the shackles that they have on as it relates to uh, adapting to or conforming to standardization. Yet there are some teachers who have found ways to get around it or navigate it or meaningfully incorporate it into a much broader educational experience for their students. So can you share any any tips or tricks or approaches or philosophies that you found useful for teachers to incorporate some of what you are sharing and you are pointing to into their day-to-day -day practices? First of all, let's be clear that standardized tests are a way of making mediocre teaching look successful. Um, and that some of the very best classrooms and schools that I've seen, uh, the most extraordinary ones, the ones where I want to send my own kids, don't necessarily get higher test scores. And conversely, there are places where the test scores are very high or even rising where that's a problem. That's a warning sign. And every parent should know that if the test scores go up beyond what you would expect based on just demographics, uh, which is what test scores mostly measure is the size of the houses near the school, um, that the parent should say, oh, no, the test scores went up. What did you have to sacrifice for my child's education to make that happen? And they need to know that as opposed to assuming test scores up, that's good, test scores down, that's bad, which is all they're really encouraged to do. So in, in my book, for example, called The Case Against Standardized Testing, uh, I spend a little bit of time dealing with your question, which is, in the meantime, as a stopgap measure, how can teachers minimize the harm that is inherent when they are pressured to raise test scores? How can we make it look like a game? 
How can we bring the students in on trying to figure out why there's this pressure and what kind of meaningful learning we can we can fit in? To what extent can I deviate from the uh, test prep curriculum without getting fired? But I don't spend most of my time on that, and I think the very question has a conservative bias, though you might not have intended it. It's basically saying this is an inherently destructive system that is squeezing the life out of classrooms. How can we make the best of it rather than oppose it? And you probably didn't mean it that way, but that's the implication when we end up focusing our attention on making the best of a bad thing. We have to do that to some extent, but most of our efforts as educators and as citizens need to be on how do we stop these requirements. The standardization that you speak of in general and the use of standardized tests in particular, or worse, high-stake standardized testing, which is what we find, is, is basically a death sentence to most of the most, the most vibrant kinds of teaching and learning. We're also squeezing out a lot of the best teachers who don't want to be test prep technicians. Uh, and the pressure on them is greatest in schools for kids of color and kids whose first language is in English, which is one more way that the whole tougher standards movement paradoxically ends up reducing the quality of education by pushing out the best teachers who are sick of doing this. That's bad in general, but it has particularly inequitable consequences in, in reality. So what I have spent most of my time talking to people about is how to organize and mobilize and help parents realize that if they have doubts about whether a test score really reflects their children's capabilities, or if they're worried about a curriculum that's mostly about raising test scores instead of helping kids to become critical thinkers who love playing with ideas, they should stop allowing their kids to take the tests. And there's been an opt-out movement. Many teachers have simply refused to give the tests or certainly to teach to them. And there's some great resources on teachers who've managed to make that happen and have been very, very effective at it and have not been fired and have shown the courage um, to do what's necessary rather than just capitulating or saying, well, I guess I can teach some good stuff around the edges, you know, but instead are saying, I won't do it. I won't, I won't be party to this. I won't be an accomplice of the people who know less about learning than I do. And there in some places have been student-organized boycotts of testing. That's what we ought to be talking about. Because, you know, the existence of things like standardized tests is not like the weather. It's not a part of life that we just have to shrug our shoulders and accommodate ourselves to. These are political decisions that can be questioned and challenged and ultimately reversed. You know, some years ago in Japan, there was a heavy emphasis on standardized testing proposed by the legislature. And the teachers, through their unions, said, we will not participate in this to a person. The stakes were too high. They said, if we have some kind of standardized system like this, education will become terrible. We can't in good conscience participate. And they won. And that's the kind of thing that has happened to some extent when teachers, parents, and kids have stood up to the st standardistos, um, as one person calls them, 
rather than just trying to figure out how to how to do some good despite them. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I head in a different direction now. So schools are opening back up now that the pandemic has subsided, whether in reality or at least from the public's interest and view. And many that you know, we come into contact with are expressing this concern of falling behind. And the thought that comes to mind for me is, well, you're falling behind relative to what? And so I, I'd be curious, knowing that that there was a level of, uh, there was a trajectory that the education system was headed on prior to the pandemic. Now that the pandemic is again subsiding in in some form or fashion, what's the opportunity that you see? And then also, what would you say to a teacher that has this anxiety about falling behind, or a parent, or even a student that says, oh, "I feel yeah. like I'm not I'm not there yet." I wrote a piece which is on my website called Is Learning Lost When Kids Are Out of School, which basically makes the argument, first of all, the claims about learning loss are entirely about standardized test results. So if if you understand, as, as I've tried to indicate briefly here, that standardized tests are, are not very useful indicators of intellectual proficiencies that matter, then we haven't even begun to ask to, to, to provide evidence that learning loss, learning loss is real. It's only the potential for loss on what standardized test measures measure. But um, the, the broader question is, while there's been a lot of suffering as a result of the sh- schools being shut down during, during the pandemic, the idea that this means people will fall behind is, as you've indicated, problematic, as if there's this notion that every eight-year-old must be here, every nine-year-old must be at this point, and so on, as if we're on a, on a conveyor belt or as if it's a race. But here's the deeper response, I think, and it has to do with learning itself. What can be lost or forgotten when you don't go to school is a particular bunch of facts and if you're gone, I mean, some of this research started before the pandemic with talk of summer learning loss. What do kids lose? And the, the answer is they may forget facts that they're going to forget anyway. And if they're gone for a whole year, they'll forget more facts about, you know, what are the six stages of cell division or what's the definition of a participle or something like that. But that's the least meaningful kind of teaching and learning to begin with. If kids are helped to understand the idea of place value rather than just memorizing algorithms, you know, tech, mathematical facts and techniques, you don't forget that. If, if kids are, are helped to think about writing in the way of how you grab a reader's attention and, and structure something to keep that attention rather than just learning how to do a five-paragraph essay, that never leaves you. If, if you've been helped to do science rather than just memorize facts about science, like by how you set up an experiment to, to isolate a variable, you know, again, this doesn't slip away. So basically, when people are talking about learning loss from the pandemic, what we have to, we have to see that as an opportunity to reflect 
on why the learning wasn't meaningful to begin with, but was just treating students as passive receptacles into which knowledge is poured, rather than as active makers of meaning, the kind of stuff that never goes away. And that's one opportunity that the pandemic provides, just like it was an opportunity to revisit why we're giving standardized tests or grades, both of which were suspended, but only because of transient considerations pertaining specifically to the pandemic itself. And I saw what was coming as soon as the pandemic was was passed. We'd be going right back to the old thing rather than saying, you know what, grades never made sense for reasons that are deeper and permanent, and so we shouldn't go back to them. And that's true with respect to testing and with respect to our understanding of what's important to be teaching in the first place. When you reflect on the trajectory of your career, I have to imagine that there were some things that you believed at the outset that evolved and matured over time. And so if you were to look back from today's present moment on some of those earlier moments, have there been any big shifts in what you believe about education? Have there, have there been any aha moments that have altered the trajectory or the course of your thinking in a, in a significant and meaningful way? I hope there have been some aha moments, otherwise it would be boring and my stuff would not be particularly useful. A lot of it is the recognition that we need to ask uh, radical questions. And I'm using radical here in the Latin sense, meaning of the root. Instead of asking how should we grade or how much homework we should give, I've become convinced that the question is, why would we ever grade or make kids work a second shift when they get home from a full day in school? Many of these concepts, including but not limited to grades and homework, inherently kill curiosity and aren't necessary. And so I've become more committed to the idea that in, in each case, we should begin by asking not just how do we do this better or minimize the harm, but should we be doing this at all? And there are other cases where I think, eh, yeah, sometimes this can be useful. There's a role for it, but we have to rethink how we're doing it and whether we may be overvaluing it. So in some cases, I've shifted slightly in thinking about in each my writing on each of these topics. Is this ever useful? Are we overvaluing this or undervaluing it? Let's begin by asking whether that's true rather than taking for granted that we have to do X to some extent and just figure out how to, how to do it slightly better. I'll give you one specific example. My first book is called No Contest, The Case Against Competition, which reviewed considerable evidence showing that whenever people are set against each other so that one can succeed only when others fail, which is what competition means by definition, that everyone loses in the long run. There's no such thing as healthy competition. I've become persuaded by hundreds of studies, contrary to the American myth, which confuses the idea of competitiveness with excellence. But in that book, I talk, for example, about how, you know, we should be doing cooperation instead, cooperative learning. And here's how we can set up an incentive system uh, with, in effect, rewarding kids for cooperating instead of for competing. Now I'm embarrassed that I wrote that because I realized that incentive systems are similarly problematic, maybe not as 
completely poisonous as contests, but still pretty damn bad. So, yeah, it's a step forward if, for example, you get rid of grading on a curve or ranking kids, um, which is just immoral. But if you're still giving them grades at all, even if everybody could get an A, um, to that extent, according to the research, they're becoming less excited about the learning itself, less likely to prefer challenging tasks, and less likely to think deeply compared to students who are freed from grades at all. So for me, my career has been a matter of, of, of continuing to evaluate and reevaluate whether a given practice or belief is being done well, but more importantly, whether there's really a need for doing it in the first place. Oh, that's great. I really like that. I really like that. Well, Alfie, thank you so much. We, we really appreciate your time. You probably don't realize, but you were, you were one of our star guests on our list when we first conceived of the podcast. So it's a real treat to have you here. We just are so appreciative that you accepted Stephen's oh. request and invitation. Well, that's very, very flattering. And I appreciate your interest in these issues. And I hope that any of your listeners who want more on any of those to topics that we've talked about or are skeptical or dubious about anything I've said, we'll have a look at my website, which is just my name, Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N.org, which contains, in addition to information about my books, also hundreds of articles for free on many of these topics. It, it, absolutely. And is there a, a good way, if folks want to follow you and keep in touch, are you on Twitter? Uh, what's, the, what's the best way? I am to on Twitter. I do, I do one, usually one carefully chosen tweet, often a link to research or a thought or a quotation every day, just one a day. I don't tweet about what I had for breakfast. And my, my Twitter handle is Alfie Cohn. But for the most part, most of what I do, the work I do is reflected in one way or another on my website. All right. Very good. All right. And that wraps up our first conversation first episode of season two for the age of awareness podcast we were truly honored to sit down and have that conversation with alfie Cohn. Um, and if you didn't hear in the conversation you can find the majority of his works and information online at alfiecone.org and you can also go ahead and uh, find him on twitter as well thank you very much for listening and as always you can also find many works of Age of Awareness on the Age of Awareness publication on medium.com and you can find the other episodes of Age of Awareness at, a at aoapodcast.com Thank you so much and tune in next time.